We're glad to be here this morning. Just thankful that uh, we're in a new year. This, uh, this year is especially uh, wonderful for my wife and I. It will be our uh, 49th wedding anniversary this year. So we're pleased with that. She's not here yet. She'll be here for the second service. When I left to come early to pray with the men around 7.30, we were here. She was still in bed. But she has been a wonderful wife. I remember when my dad and mom had their 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, there were a whole bunch of people together, friends and relatives, filled up like a whole pavilion. And someone asked dad, What's the secret to being married to the same woman for 50 years? And he said this. He said, well, my wife and I got together early on, and she suggested this. Any of the small decisions, I'll make, honey. And any of the big decisions, they're yours. Dad said, that sounds like a good plan. And then he said, in 50 years of marriage... There's never been a big decision. That's the secret. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say that our marriage head was all smooth, a bed of roses, but that is not the case. I remember when we were early on in our marriage, we had all kinds of issues and problems. First of all, we were in a little 12 by 50 trailer. And uh, if that wasn't enough, for some reason we decided we were going to raise Great Danes. <laughs> Thor, he was a huge, almost like a miniature horse. Charity was the female. And when you get a female and a male together, guess what you have? Puppies, lots of them, in the trailer. And I don't remember what I did wrong, but at one point I remember pots and plans, pans flying across the room, and I just thought, you know, what did I do now? I don't even remember now what I did, but if you ask my wife, she'll remember. Women, wives in particular, have good memories when it comes to our failures, men. So we have to be careful. I always look at the life of Christ and I say it's just a wonderful thing. When you look at the life of Christ, he lived with his brothers and sisters. Mary had children after Christ. Joseph was with Mary, the scripture says, after Jesus was born. So he he was raised in a family. He was the oldest. And what's remarkable about this is that they knew one of the qualifications for a Messiah would be that he would be a sinless man. And if you look at the life of Christ, his mother would say that. His brother James was the first bishop of the church. Not Peter, but James. He would have said that. Jesus lives a sinful life. Now, if you want to know what we're like, you go to the closest person that lives with us and you ask them, what's that person really like? And they'll tell you. They'll tell you that we're professional sinners. 
The only thing that saves us is the grace of God. That's the only thing that's going to save us this year. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If 2021 is going to be better the last year, and we hope it is, it'll be by the grace of God coming into our lives and fulfilling His purposes in our life. So it's a new beginning today. It's the first Sunday of the new year, the first week of the new year, the first month of the new year. And we've got this brand new beginning. We want to be able to see this morning that the beginning that God is creating for us is going to be a prosperous one. So we're going to look at the scripture this morning, try to understand this from a biblical perspective. Our hope is in God's word and his truth and in his son. And we want to have confidence in the future. We want to have confidence in the future because of the Word of God. We want the Word of God to guide us, to give us the information that we need. It sustains us. It's like manna from heaven. We need it every day. We need to gather it into our life. We need to concentrate, meditate upon the Word of God, study to show ourselves approved unto God. When I preach, I do an outline. I give the outline to Roger, and Roger puts it up here so that you can kind of see the direction. But when I study, I go all over the place. I mean, I've been down so many rabbit trails with this passage that we're looking at today and several others that um, I don't really know what's going to happen. It's uh, extemporaneous. You just kind of let it get up here and let it go. And what God brings into my mind, good or bad, you're going to get it. So let's look. Let's look at this passage today. It's the first passage in the Scripture. Now, what I like to do before I read a book, I like to look at the beginning of the book, and I like to look at the end. If it's not going to be a good ending, I'm not reading it. I want to know that it's going to end good. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the beginning. The first verse, actually in the Hebrew, it's just seven words. If you take the seven words in Hebrew, each one has a Hebraic number. When the Bible was written, unless the numbers are actually spelled out, they're never used. But the letters, both in Hebrew and in Greek, have number qualities. So there are seven words in the Hebrew. I was studying this week and I came across this fact that when you study numbers in the Scripture, there's only one word that has the equivalent of 666. I found that very interesting. I might tell you what that word is sometime because it's a remarkable thing to try and understand that in light of the significance of that number. In the beginning, that ought to be just about what we need to know. If God is in the beginning, everything ought to work out pretty good. Everything ought to go just as He plans. And as He is the creator of heaven and earth, we can have great confidence. Did you go outside this last week or so and see Jupiter and Saturn in line with each other? When I first saw it that one night, it looked like they were just right together. But one was actually 
behind the other. But when you look through the binoculars, you could see clearly there were two planets there. That happened 800 years ago. God has created a finely tuned universe. When I was preaching to the kids in chapel at our Christian school, one time I brought a bag of parts of a watch that I'd torn apart. You know, that kind you had to wind up. And um, all the springs were out of it and all the stems. And I held the bag up and I had several of the kids just come up and shake it around. And I said, how many times will you have to shake that up and down before it all comes together ticking? And they said, never. And I said, that's why, you know, that watch had a creator, someone who put it all together. That's what our world is like. It's a finely tuned machine that God has put together and no one else could do it. So we've got a good beginning here. It's God creating the heaven and the earth. It's a masterpiece. It's so huge that it takes light years of travel. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of light years to get across the span of what's called the second heaven. The first heaven's the atmosphere right above us. The second heaven includes all the stars, galaxies, all the planets. The third heaven, I believe, surrounds all that. That's how massive God is in His creative genius. But He's the creator of it all. The Bible says you should be able to look out and see creation and know that there is a God. You're without excuse when you look outside and you see what He has created. And then there's the micro part of His creation. Maybe we'll just take a look at our bodies. It takes a computer seven stories deep to build a computer that could do even remotely the things that your body does automatically on a daily basis. You breathe in the air. Uh, Alex says the blood is circulating through your body. The impurities are being taken out in the process. All the things that your body does... And you don't even have to train it. It just does it so automatically. It's the way you've been created. I have a friend that has perhaps a, um, a carotid artery here. He's going to go in, and they're going to explore and see what can be done with that. And so they're going to take this little mechanism up in his groin and fly it up through his body and then take a look with a camera to see what's wrong. Put a little bit of dye in there. Isn't it a remarkable thing that God has given us understanding of how meticulously we are made? God is so wonderful in every detail of His creation. Now let's take a look at the end of the book. I want to know the ending's going to turn out right or I'm not reading it. And it turns out beautifully in the Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Let's look at these passages. And there shall be no more curse. That's a good thing because the earth was cursed because of sin. And so the sin remedy has come along. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The curse has been removed. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. That's the new Jerusalem that it's talking about. God's going to reign on earth. It's going to be a thousand year reign. It's going to be wonderful. His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. 
His name shall be in their foreheads. I like that. The name of God written upon you. It says you have a name that only you and God will know. And then a special meaning for the way that you have been created. There'll be no night there. Well, maybe we won't be used to that, will we? (laughs) When the night comes, things slow down, but your body won't need to slow down. It won't need sleep. You know, uh, if you're 70 years old, I'm 71, some of you are probably in that area too, and you sleep eight hours a day, you just about sleep 30 years of your life away. Can you imagine that? Then you work eight hours a day, and about 30 years of your life is work. There's not much left for just you. And then you plan how you're going to, uh, you know, get to know the Lord. You're going to give a couple hours here or there to know the Lord on a daily basis. I'd like to give 2.4 hours. Now, I don't always measure it. But I figure 10% of my time ought to be on the Lord. Now, if you spend 10% of your time daily seeking the Lord, it's going to be a couple hours every day. And if we can do that, it'll change the course of our lives, the way that we think. And God is so good to remind us how much we need Him. He's the, uh, there's no need of a candle, no neither need of the sun. The Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. It's talking about us, all the people of God. And He said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show us his servants the things which might shortly be done. Must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Now, pay close attention to the next verse. Then he said to me, See thou do it not. He just bowed down to worship the angel, he supposed. But the angel, he supposes, now knows that that is a fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. And of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. First sermon I ever preached here was entitled, Back to the Future. When John went back to heaven, he was able to look into the future and see things from a perspective he had never seen before. And from this passage, we know that redeemed people have insight into God's Word and God's truth. God's going to fill you with the knowledge of what He's going to do. And you're going to be part of that plan in accomplishing what His purposes are. You're not going to go to heaven and sleep. You're going to have work to do for your King. And so we better get our minds programmed for that kind of thinking. How we can serve the Lord and will continue to do that in a mighty way as we grow closer to Him in the future and especially in heaven. He saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. 
So that's the first part. In the beginning, God. And the last part of the book looks pretty good to me. I'm going to read it all. I'm going to try to understand it. The trouble is, when you're looking at the first part of the Bible and the last part of the Bible, you're saying that's good, but we're in the middle someplace. We're in the middle where all the trouble is. We're in the middle of a Satan who's been cast out of heaven along with a third of the angels under under the Lord. We've seen the failure of Adam and Eve, as explained in the Scripture. We understand that there was a murder early on in the Bible when Cain killed his brother. And then Seth came along and the righteous. But there was such an undermining of the things of God that the generations that lived after him became so evil that God decided to terminate almost all of humanity except for eight people, the family of Noah. And after that, it takes us through the prophets of God, through all the warnings that Israel's given to seek the Lord. And for some reason, they can't get it straight. They don't do that, and they fall under the judgment of God. Then comes a man after God's own heart, David. Incidentally, David was a prophet a priest, and a king. The only other one like that will be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David did have a heart after the Lord, a man after God's own heart. Then, of course, he fails many times. We all do. We fail and we need forgiveness. But even in the midst of our failure, God can do mighty, mighty things. When I was reading the genealogy of the Lord, it just thrills me to know that God uses sinners just like us. The Bible continued to call Bathsheba Uriah's. That was was her husband. And yet Solomon is born. And the lineage of the king works through him. Before that, a harlot is saved out of Jericho. The lineage of God flows through that harlot. Through a Moabite. Through a person that wasn't even from Israel. Boaz and Ruth are part of the lineage of David. And as you trace how marvelously God can work, I hope it gives you great hope. You're in the middle of the book someplace. But you fit perfectly. And when God gets done with things, it's going to be a beautiful ending for your life and for the whole world in which we live. So we're in the middle. But in the middle, it's a place of uncertainty. We don't always know what's going to happen. It's a place where you, you just can't get a firm hold. There's no foundation. You're not sure what tomorrow holds for you. The doctor's prognosis can be scary when he tells you something you don't want to know, but you know something's wrong. That's why you went there. And then there's no money in the bank. There's lots of people that are unemployed. There's a fellow who's just taking up funds to help businesses that have gone under practically. 
It's not something the state is doing, but he's doing it independently. People are donating and helping businesses. There are so many people that are in trouble financially, no money in the bank. You can be pushed into a panic mode, especially concerning this virus, the vaccine, and all the uh, factors that are involved there. I'd encourage you to really research that. Because something that takes four or five years normally to develop, or even longer, if it's done in just a few months, I think there's a, a reason to be cautious. And in fact, as I looked at this and I studied this week, I, I just came across some astounding things. Part, part of the vaccine system, part of those vaccines that are out there, are made from aborted fetuses. Babies, babies that have been taken out of the womb, never been allowed to be born. When I studied a little further, there are some companies using baby fetus to increase the flavoring of food. Check out your Pepsi products, Nestle's. Some of the aborted fetuses use to develop cosmetics, especially the anti-wrinkle kind. You know, we need to research and know and understand the sign of the times in which we're living. And when we do that, God will open our eyes to see what's going on. So I've talked to people, and I don't know if this is the case in the church or not, and it may not be the case for uh, a lot of people, but they, they're not going to get the virus, they're not going to get the vaccine right away, maybe not at all. But I'll tell you this, God is in control of our lives, and no vaccine is going to protect us like the Lord Jesus Christ will. There's always analysis, and when you analyze, analyze things so much, it can lead to doing nothing. You're just kind of stuck in the way. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible has an app for all that. We're going to look at a passage that will give you, in the midst of all this frustration and trouble that you can be part of, and you are part of on a daily basis, there's an app that will help you tremendously. It's found in Romans 8:28. It's a familiar passage, but I, I'd say, you know, you need to memorize it and know it, and often bring it into your mind when you're thinking about the decisions and the problems that you face on a daily basis. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? None of these things will separate us. Nay, in all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, principalities there refers to the work of satanic powers, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can take that 
to the bank because it is absolutely true. We're going to look at illustrations of how this has worked through the time in which others have lived, and they're recorded in the Scriptures. Saul is a primary person to look at because he was the first king of Israel. Now, Saul started off very humble. In fact, when they wanted to make him king, he went and hid. But through the course of his kingship, he leaned less and less upon the Lord and got himself in a lot of trouble. In fact, the Philistines had gathered outside of Israel and they were coming to kill the Israelites. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 13 that there were 30,000 chariots the Philistines had, 6,000 horsemen. The warriors, the rest of them, were like the sand of the sea. And when Saul found out how great the army was, he'd had um, a few thousand, but as the Philistines gathered, his army just spread out. They were hiding, the Scripture says, under rocks, in valleys. They went up into the mountains to get as far away as they could. They went into other countries. He was left with 600 men. And the Bible says this about those 600 men. They were all trembling because they knew that what their fate would be unless something unusual happened. So Saul is waiting for Samuel, but Samuel doesn't come. And then he decides he's going to offer the sacrifice himself. So he he gathers the sacrificial items, takes them to the altar, begins to sacrifice them in some way to bring all his army back together again. But it was against the law for him to do that, and Samuel shows up right after he's done. And he tells Saul that the kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to somebody after God's own heart. Now, you'd say he really messed up, didn't he? But even in the midst of his messing up, here's what God did. First, Jonathan ran out with just an armor bearer, and he takes on a whole group of Philistines, kills them all, and then unbelievable things happened. The earth began to quake. And it began to rain hail, and all of the armies that was out there began to kill each other. And the noise of it was just spread about. Saul with his 600 men began to chase the Philistines away. It was a great victory. Even though Saul wasn't what he should have been, just because we're not all that we should be doesn't mean God is going to forsake us. That gives me great hope. take a look at Joseph. I think many of you know something about him. Jacob never should have given him a coat of many collars. He shouldn't have shown preference for Joseph over the other brothers, over his other sons. You know, he loved Rachel so much that Joseph was her child, so he got preferential treatment because of that. But it caused great jealousy among the brothers and They plotted to get rid of him. So he went down to take some food for them, and they thought, we're going to get rid of this guy now. See him coming? 
they threw him in a pit and we're going to just kill him. But no, why should we do that? We'll just sell him into slavery. So that's what they did. A caravan took him down to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar's household. He did a great job there. You see, the Lord never stopped being with Joseph. And he was so much a man of God that Potiphar recognized how he was being blessed by having Joseph in his household. The trouble was, Potiphar's wife was there who began to chase after him. She wanted to go to bed with him so bad. He was a handsome fella. But in the process of trying to get away from her, she tore his jacket off of him and it was left behind. And then she told her husband that Joseph had tried to make advances and the only thing that saved her was crying out. Was that a lie? Absolutely. Joseph was totally innocent, but he was thrown into jail. Anybody know how many years? Thirteen years. Now, you'd say a year or so. Well, you know, that's not too bad. But for 13 years to be in jail, to be in prison. But God was still with him. In fact, the jailer put Joseph practically in charge of everything. And God had given him a special gift so that he could interpret dreams. And when he interpreted the dreams of two people in that prison, they ended up telling Pharaoh there was someone who can interpret your dream. And when Joseph went and did that and explained it so clearly, it was absolutely miraculous what happened next. He was put in charge of all of Egypt, only second He was second only to Pharaoh himself. And God began to bless Joseph. Through what Joseph would go through, his original dream was fulfilled. His parents, his brothers, the household of Israel would bow before him as he became that powerful leader that saved Israel from the famine. And then there's Moses, all that Moses went through, 40 years in Egypt thinking he was something, 40 years in the wilderness finding out he was nothing, and then 40 years seeing what God can do with someone who's humbled in the sight of God. The Bible says there wasn't a man on earth as meek as Moses was. That's how God begins to work in our life when we realize how much we need Him. When we sense our own, our own failures and we come to God with a broken heart, God can lift us up. David, a man after God's own heart, you know the story. I think I told you last week one of the shocking things when I studied the life of David is how he lived a long, long life. Died at a ripe old age is what the scripture says. But he died at 70 years of age. He died at my age. And there are a few of you out there that I know you could say the same thing. Or maybe you've even made it past 70. God considers that a ripe old age. 
And he's blessed us quite often with many more years than that. Saul of Tarsus, Saul's an enemy of the Lord, but God strikes him down on the road to Damascus. And what happens next is a miraculous thing. He becomes the person who's used to evangelize the Gentiles of the day, writes two thirds of the scriptures. His name is changed from Saul to Paul, and he becomes the man of God. I believe he outperformed all the other apostles born out of season, he says. But he gave his heart and his life to God. He was probably around 40 years of age when he was converted. So you say, well, I've lived a long time, but God might not be done with you yet. In fact, the greatest part of your life might yet to be lived if God gets a hold of you the way he can and would like to. So what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. We have to remember Satan's around. He's trying to corrupt us. He's trying to hurt us. He's trying to belittle us. In fact, in Ephesians, we find out in this passage, verse 1, You and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the Lord doing that great work wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past with the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who in His rich mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath God quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment because we should be able to visualize what Jesus, what God visualizes for us in the future, seated together in heavenly places. You see, this life is so short What's the songwriter say when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun? We've no less days to sing God's praise than if we'd just begun. Not many of us will reach a hundred. My mother's uh, going to be 91. She is feeble. She has to use a walker. When I called her last night, I call her every night around 10 o'clock. She'd gone to bed early because her stomach was upset. She didn't know what she did. And I'll call her today and see how she's doing. Because that's my mom. And I love her. But we are, we are feeble creatures. We're on our way down concerning this body. You reach your greatest maturity, the greatest pinnacle of your life, somewhere in the 20s. And from that point on, it's downhill. I stood upon a uh, golf course when I was just young. I, I probably was around 22, 23 years of age. 
and it was a par 5, 425 feet. I hit the golf ball, and it made it the whole way to the green. Of course, the ground was frozen. That helps. First bounce was as high as the trees. (laughs) But I'll never forget that. 425 yards. I don't care if the ground is frozen or not. I'm not going to be able to do that again. So you reach the pinnacle. And then it's downhill because that's the way God has made this body. That in the ages to come, He might show us exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath shown before, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I was um, at a March for Life. It was in Pittsburgh, not Washington, D.C., though we'd been there several times, too. And we were marching in Pittsburgh because McGee Hospital was burning up the babies that they aborted that week before. And it was the middle of July, and smoke began to come out of the smokestacks at McGee Hospital. Everybody knew what that was. They were burning up aborted babies. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of us there. While I was marching, I was marching beside a Catholic priest. And he seemed like a nice enough fellow, so I said to him, Isn't it something we're able to be here together as brothers against this atrocity? Where we wouldn't agree on much doctrinally if that were the case. And he said, Well, what wouldn't we agree with? And I said, well, let me think. Do you believe the Pope is infallible? And he said, history would prove me wrong. Some of the worst popes, the worst men in history that were popes have been in that position in the Catholic Church. And I said, well, what about the current Pope? And he said, he's just a man. Well, what about church? Well, um, can you tell me, do people get saved because they go to your church? And he said, they only get saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what I teach. I can't save them, only God can save them. By the time we were done talking, I had a brother. You'll find that. Don't start labeling people because they're of a different religion, a different sect than you are. You may have more points that you can agree on. They'll certainly have some that you can't. But more points that you can agree on than you can imagine. So what's the worst thing that could happen to you in the middle of this story? Well, the worst thing is, according to uh, Psalms 90, verse 10, the days... Of our years are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is their strength and labor sorrow, for it is soon cut off 
and we fly away, the worst thing that can happen to you that day will be the best day of your life. We fly away. That's where the song comes from. Some glad morning when this life is over. I've sung that here with you before, and it's amazing how well we sing that together. It's as though that's something to look forward to. I'll fly away, O glory. When I die, I'll fly away. I'm going to God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a land where joy shall never end. I'll fly away, O glory. I'll fly away when I die. Hallelujah. By and by, I'll fly away. If you want to fly, you have to die. That's the way it happens. I was thinking this week of a cocoon, you know, when, when, a, when a worm, caterpillar, spins its cocoon. I've squashed those before, you know, they go in the most horrible places. But if you were able to watch one to the end, out of the cocoon comes a butterfly. And the butterfly flies away. In fact, I've got to tell you right now, I think the butterfly looks better than it did in the cocoon or even when it was just a caterpillar. It sheds what it can't keep. And that's exactly what we will do. Shed the body. It's your cocoon. What's inside of you is what's valuable, and that's your soul. That's your spirit, and that goes right up to heaven. That's where God is. When you close your eyes on earth, you're going to open your eyes in heaven. That ought to give you something to shout about and praise the Lord. So glad that that's our future, and it's bright. That whole process is called metamorphosis. That's what's going to happen to us. Get rid of the old. Something better is coming. In fact, it's stupid to ever think you shouldn't invest your life in something that you can keep forever. Not in something that you're going to lose. Don't invest your life in this earth and money and riches. But invest your life in the Lord. The Bible does call us worms. I have several passages here. I think I gave you a two How much less man that is a worm, and the Son of Man which is a worm. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. God's going to take the worm, that's you and me, and He's going to transform us into uh, the image of His Son, Here's the passage that I really like. It's found in 1 Corinthians also. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, 
that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The Bible gives us great hope in knowing that's our destiny. That's our future. If you should be alive, the Bible says you'll be changed in a twinkling of an eye. Those are the only people that won't die. That's not happened too often in the Scripture, which you have um, Elijah and Enoch. That's the only two that we know of that didn't die. But those who are alive when Jesus Christ comes, they'll just be changed. There'll be a multitude of people, I believe, who will never die. And yet if you do, when I go to a a cemetery and I have the part of the funeral where you're standing at the grave and ashes to ashes and dust to dust before I ever say any of that, I say this, we're on resurrection ground. These graves are going to be open. This person we're burying now Since they were a child of God, they were born again. They're going to rise up. I said that at my own daughter's funeral. And I believe it with all of my heart. I miss her so much. But I'm going to spend eternity and with my Lord. God has a way of making things better. Your future is bright according to God's word. Bright because our God is great. So you get to the end of the Bible and you read those last segments that we read today. That is just the beginning then of your eternity with the Lord forever. Can't we praise Him for that? Isn't the Lord good? Isn't the end of the book going to be better than the beginning? That's our God. Let's all stand and we'll, we'll pray and ask God's presence. So, Heavenly Father, we have a bright future and it's because of what Your Son has done for us. We don't have to fear. We can be certain, Lord, that You're in charge and the end is going to be great. So have us take heart, Lord. Recognize and confess that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who has never done that, we're praying that they will turn their hearts to you too. It's a a simple thing to do, but has profound results. Just to say a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. 
I believe in your Son, and I accept him as my personal Savior. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for allowing his death on the cross to bring about my salvation. Thank you for resurrecting him. Thank you for the promises that are mine in Christ Jesus. I don't know them all, but I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I just hope this morning, Lord, anyone who hasn't known you as Savior would confess that today and be born again. So, Father, as we head out for communion, we're just praying that we will be able to take communion with a clean heart. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves, judge ourselves. We do that, Lord, by confessing, asking forgiveness for our sin, knowing that we're saved by the blood of Christ makes communion wholesome and good and wonderful. So we do ask for forgiveness, Lord, this morning. We are human. We don't even know the things that we might do that are against your work. So many things must be revealed to us as we grow in Christ. But today, Lord, everything we know to do, we want to do so that we can partake of that which is glorious and receive that blessing together. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you out by the crosses.